Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities in one of the most militarized, controlled and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. This second episode will continue to investigate how migration policies define borderlands. Over time, the border, its control and its surveillance have become an issue. We'll focus in this episode on border regime, what kind of apparatus is used, how it impacts communities living on borderlands, and who benefits from it. Todd Miller, a Tucson journalist covering borderlands and migration issue for years, co-founder of Border Chronicle, explains. The idea that the border is simply an international line is that that was discarded years and years ago in, in terms of border patrol strategy. And you see how that plays out in Arizona, that the border is in a, in a, in a much wider zone. And that actually was determined de decades ago, but there's a hundred mile zone jurisdiction. The border um, has long, long ago, it was determined that um, through a number of rulings, like one was uh, that, uh, that border patrol had, could patrol reasonable distance from, from, from the borderline. And then that reasonable distance was determined to be 100 miles. And I believe the Supreme Court in 1970s then you know, verified that as um, true. So that's, then it became what is known as a 100-mile zone. The ACLU um, called it at first. They no longer called this because I think they might have got an inch or, or basically, well, they call it, let me say what they called it. They called it the Constitution-Free Zone um, in some of their first bits of literature, looking at the 100-mile zone, uh, Constitution-Free Zone, because their argument and many people's argument is that the Constitution, particularly the Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment um, that in the United States that people have the right not to be searched nor seized, That 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 the Fourth Amendment is, well, it's it's they're exempt. Actually, one I use the word exempt because that was the exact word that a a, C, a Customs and Border Protection official used to me told me in an interview, and this is in the headquarters in Washington D.C. And he said, "We are exempt from the Fourth Amendment," and um, basically. That's the beef. The ACLU has revised its language, and they say, well, of course, people have their constitutional rights, including people who are not from the United States. They are afforded the rights in the, in the U.S. Constitution when in the United States. Even, it might be hard to believe, but that's, that's supposedly the case. And so the ACLU has revised it. But I would say that the Constitution-free, or, or maybe you can revise it again and say the Constitution-mangled zone, Because there are, within those 100 miles, the Border Patrol or Department of Homeland Security, or um, they can, they have extra constitutional powers. They are allowed to put up checkpoints, for example, where police, normal police units would not be able to do that. Um, supposedly in Arizona, they're, they're temporary, but they're not, they're permanent. <laughs> there was a, there's a, there's a whole long thing about that, but... There's been per there's permanent checkpoints that are set up you know, all throughout Arizona and all throughout the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, but also that the border patrol can patrol in Phoenix. It's it's a it's um and Phoenix is actually pretty is a hundred miles north of the border. So um, 
but it's it's if you look at the United States and the and you and you imagine like a band going around the the contour of the country, um, the hundred mile zone actually captures the southern border, which is two thousand miles, but also the northern border, which is like five thousand miles, and and the coast. So so you look at this zone, which you could call a constitutionally mang- mangled zone, and it's it's covering a population of two hundred million people um uh, two-thirds of the country and and people might say well they're not on the coast well they're getting as long as as they keep expanding they're more and more on the coast like the state of florida which is entirely within the 100 mile zone has five border patrol stations and they regularly go to like amtrak stations and greyhound bus stations and board and ask people for their identification so people can make their correlations to other times in history when that that might that has happened. Um, the main is also completely covered with a hundred mile zone, um, and there is border patrol there, not as much, but there are they're there, and and so yeah, it just it becomes this area um, where where you're in kind of a a state of exception. Um, and a, a permanent state of exception, and for one reason, and that's the border. And what about today? How did borderlands so militarized, controlled, and surveilled? In 1994, the Clinton administration introduced the Prevention Through Deterrence Strategy, implemented since then by Border Patrol. This strategy transformed this border, where moving was quite fluid, even though it was already controlled, to what we have today along the border. A longer and higher physical wall, Cuban port of entry ultra secured, mobile patrol along the border, more surveillance system. Let's continue to listen to Todd Miller. You can look at a lot of different dates. I like to look at 1994 as a date when everything really significantly changed. And I, and I want to preface that by saying there's a great book called The Militarization of the U.S.-Mexico Border by the sociologist Timothy Dunn, and it covers from 1978 to, to 1992. So it covers that little period before the Ronald Reagan years in the United States of the 1980s. And if you look at the budgets, and this is for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, they're increasing through those years. And you can see more and more emphasis put on the border, more and more as Dunn documents Uh, equipment being brought in from military um, to be deployed on the border. And also, as Dunn also writes, the Pentagon being a part of um, what is known as the low-intensity doctrine to be then uh, implemented on the border. I'm talking border-wide, not just Arizona, but it, of course, affects Arizona. And that and that was all, all um, building up to the implementation of the prevention through deterrence strategy in 1994. And the prevention through deterrence strategy was actually technically in 1993 uh, with Operation Hold the Line, um, which was was basically um, Silvestre Reyes, who was the the sector chief in El Paso, took all the the border patrol and put them right on the line with, uh, between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez and one after the other, after the other, after the other, put like helicopters, it made it literally impassable. Um, 
the uh, to, for people who are coming from Juarez, which are a lot of people that were just working in people's homes or get their jobs were in El Paso. So it just really it really caused quite quite a stir. Um, but that was the implementation of prevention through deterrence. What the people in Juarez realized was that they could go around it and circumvent it. Yeah, you had to go to the desert a little bit, but then you can come back into El Paso. Um, so hold the line uh, really led way to a Border Patrol memorandum in 1994, which said there would be a mortal danger. You know, if we emphasize what they did in, in El Paso by putting like agents and technologies and what what has turned to be like what they call the border wall system, right? The 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 building of a wall. So one of the they, they, that was the year that in Nogales, if you go to Nogales. Um, in Arizona, just 60 miles to the south of here, where they took out the chain link fence and put up a 15 foot wall. Um, and they brought in border patrol, just like in El Paso, to, to um, stop anyone from crossing, um, going over the wall, and then they reinforced it with technology. Now they call that the border wall system. It's, I say it's still in place. This idea of prevention through deterrence, so, where people would cross, in this case of, this, of Nogales or El Paso or San Diego or wherever you want to look, they could not no longer cross, right? And so in order to cross and come into the United States, they, they would have to go around wherever this, the, the enforcement was, is um, concentrated. And, that, and then according to the memorandum, the desert or the desolate areas where people can't carry enough food or water would be then a deterrent, and so the pre the prevention through deterrence strategy, and that strategy is really defined what we've seen in Arizona ever since, and just the, the border like so it started in 1994 the INS had and that basically you could deduce the border and immigration enforcement budget through the INS, and it was 1.5 billion dollars in 1994. By the end of the Bill Clinton presidency, because this happened from between 1992 and 2000, which is his presidency, um, I believe it was $4.2 billion was the INS budget. So it might seem minuscule at the time compared to today, today's budgets, which I'll get to in a second. But at the time, it was the most dramatic increase that we'd ever seen on the U.S.-Mexico border in terms of budgets. Uh, I think there was, I can't remember, when there was 4,000 Border Patrol agents in 1994, I believe by the end of the Clinton, there was 8,000 or 9,000, so doubling the Border Patrol, um, bringing in technologies, that sort of thing. And um, so by the end of, by the time George W. Bush took office in 2001, uh, there, were, there were significant in, in fortification, which was definitely playing out in Arizona with Operation Safeguard. That was the version of Operation Hold the Line, Operation Gatekeeper in, in Southern California. And then 9-11 um, then happened, and pretty much that just, again, well, what I, what I would argue is 9-11, because before 9-11, there was no Department of Homeland Security. So Department of Homeland Security was a, a creation of 9-11. It was implemented in 2003. Um, the, the Departments of Customs and Border Protection, CBP, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, among others, were created because to, to be a part of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, CBP, ICE, DHS, priority mission was counterterrorism. So definitely it became like a, 
kind of global war on terror front, uh, the border. And even though there was nothing of the of the sort, you know, there wasn't any any quote unquote terrorists crossing the border. Um, the budgets for border enforcement going into ICE or border and immigration enforcement going into ICE and CBP just it was like the money faucets just turned on and uh, and you can see like if Bill Clinton ended his presidency with 4.2 billion dollars by the end of George W. Bush's presidency with the creation of the DHS in 2008 it was um, uh, 15 billion dollars and uh and you and you can let that that's and those are annual budgets right so this is like so fifth so it goes from five more or less 4.5 billion to 15 billion and you can see like through the george w bush presidency like big um projects like the secure fence act of 2006 um which basically created 650 miles of walls and barriers uh, was implemented the SBI net, which is basically this the creation of a virtual wall. Virtual wall, I mean a technological wall. Which this this really really the focus of SBI net was Arizona. So you can see um, some of the initial towers that were the Boeing Corporation got the big contract, and you can go to different places in southern Arizona and see the the original towers from Boeing. Um, and the idea was that there would be another layer, like the idea that the border is a, simply an international line, is that that was discarded years and years ago in, in terms of border patrol strategy. And you see how that plays out in Arizona, that the border is in a, in a, in a much wider zone. And that actually was determined dec decades ago, but there's a 100-mile zone jurisdiction. And within that 100-mile zone, you can see, and we've seen this in Arizona, like the implementation of all these like surveillance towers, um, which started with SBI net, um, implanted motion sensors. Um, around that time with George W. Bush, you also had the first drones doing surveillance. Um, and all of it was in the walls, of course, the 650 miles. All of it was in the strategy of prevention through deterrence. So it's just like you have bigger budgets, but then 1994, uh, build up the borders and, and traditional crossing places, but now it's expanding to even more rural areas, which has had the effect of forcing people into more and more remote locations. And so that just continued, right? Like the DHS and then the Obama years, really. It, in fact, the Obama years was the Arizona technology plan. Um, they, they actually canceled the SBI net and they then... Uh, focused on what they call the Arizona Technology Plan, which is in Arizona became this kind of, it became the pilot program of the virtual wall. And so that's now why we have like, you know, 50 integrated fixed towers going across Southern Arizona, remote video surveillance systems in different places, scope trucks, um, mobile video surveillance systems all these different um, implementations of the border enforcement that's, that are strategically placed and, and, and also checkpoints. Checkpoints, um, there, were, uh, there have been checkpoints for, again, for decades, but they increased the number of checkpoints. So it's difficult to go on any paved road north without going through a checkpoint. And all this, like, just that everything goes in the prevention through deterrence, a checkpoint 
you might not have anyone undocumented going through a checkpoint or um but uh it, it causes undocumented people across the border to avoid the checkpoints and go even for it makes them have to walk maybe an extra day to get past the checkpoint you know so the checkpoints have this have this um effect on how how people uh how long people are walking through the desert trying to get to a place where they can get a ride or to a city or something like that so that's basically it so now arizona um really has become of all the states the most probably the most militarized in terms of like looking at all these you know systems coming together a lot of the emphasis has shifted to southern texas in recent probably the last decade as demographic shifts of people going through southern texas and crossing crossing the border through there but arizona remains a focal point and it seems i can't i don't know for sure but it seems like there are more people crossing through here you know that there's there's a, a an ups I don't know if an upsur upsurge is the correct word, but there's more people. People never stop crossing through here, and it seems like it's up again. So Borderlands is a zone composed of different layers of control mechanism and surveillance system. It's not a simple line separating two countries. It's definitely more than a wall. The border apparatus has consequences on the field for people living in the region, especially for the Tono Otam nation. Borderlands is above all part of the native land. The Tohono O'odham are Native Americans who have been living in the region for centuries and struggling for their rights. 62 miles of the international border between the U.S. and Mexico separates the tribe members. Abbes say, we never crossed the border, the border crossed us. Let's listen to David Garcia, a Tohono O'odham Nation member, talking about the Tohono O'odham Nation. Uh, my name is David Garcia. I'm a member of the Tohono O'odham Nation, which is Desert People, uh, located here in Southern Arizona, uh, which is the second uh, fairly recognized tribe in the United States, uh, one of the border tribes here in uh, the Southwest border. The Tohono O'odham is uh, located in Southern Arizona. We are one of the uh, border tribes here in the, on the Southwest border. We're located uh, about 60 miles just west of the city of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, population is roughly about 35,000, uh, as well as those that are included in um, the state of uh, Sonora in the country of Mexico. Territory covers uh, uh, all the way south, uh, southwest border into the, the state of Sonora, uh, clear down into Hermosillo, And then so east uh, to the boundary of the state of New Mexico and Arizona and to the west uh, is the state of California. And then to the north is uh, the city of Phoenix, Arizona, which is the capital of the uh, of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, we're, one of the, uh, we're one of the four sister tribes. Uh, we are the largest uh, nation uh, including the three sister tribes, which is Akin, Salt River, and Hila River. Those are the three sister tribes. Well, those, that are those who reside in the, in the United States um, uh, versus those who re 
reside in the state of Mexico, in the state of Sonora in Mexico. Uh, they are considered next, uh, Mexican nationals. Uh, the population there is probably roughly anywhere from two to 3,000. And so the majority of our tribal members live uh, in the United States as well as uh, other places outside of the United States. But the ones that are living in uh, in Mexico are also included in our enrollment uh, population. And that's why I mentioned that those are on both sides of the, of the border are included in, in the Tomal donation. Mm. Uh, uh, I've been traveling to uh, various parts of the country uh, uh, as of 2017, 2018. Uh, traveled to New York City and been a part of the United Nations uh, Permanent Forum, uh, which is held every year in April which includes uh, participating as a delegate for the American Indian Movement West, uh, which is an office out of San Francisco, California. And there I submitted, uh, for the record, uh, as a speaker at the permanent forum, including human rights and civil rights abuses on both sides of the border, which includes the United States Border Patrol, specifically the Tucson sector. As well as as well as citizens uh, uh, and members of other indigenous peoples that have uh, traveled through our nation or through our reservation, uh, who are those who also tribal members who have been actually deported by the United States Border Patrol. Well, um, during the uh, Trump Trump's administration, uh, as you know or may not know, that from the very beginning he. Uh, campaign in regards to the inter of the southwest border, and one of the things that uh, towards the end, before actually the wall was built during his administration, were these prototype uh, walls. And so uh, there are no act. There actually is no border uh, border wall to speak of uh, when you look at uh, off the reservation along the southwest border because our reservation falls along the international border uh, right up against the, the country of Mexico. So you don't see that border wall that you see uh, at different parts of the southwest border, but what you do see is uh, a prototype wall, if you may, which is vehicle barriers, and there's three or four uh, types of uh, barriers. Uh, so that's that, that goes back to probably going back to the uh, probably around close to 2002-2003 uh, going back those many years but again nothing compared to what the, uh, Trump's administration was working towards. You don't see that on the nation side. 1995-96 that was the beginning of the discussions with the United States Border Patrol, but other federal agencies. Um, and so that was the beginning of this relationship just with the district of Kukutku, and, yet, and I, had failed to, I had failed to say that our reservation is made up of districts. Those are, there's 11 districts, and each district uh, has its own district council. 
But getting back to the district that I'm a member of, that was the district that the federal departments and agencies began the discussion uh, from the very beginning. And that's why uh, all of the initiatives uh, from, that, from that point on up until now has been all of the initiatives that the district has supported um, by way of the United States Border Patrol. Uh, what we have today is what wasn't there in the beginning, back in 95, was that uh, what you have now is two substations, uh, which are United States Border Patrol slash Stonewall Complete Department. These are two substations that, uh, that houses uh, agents, including uh, Stonewall from police officers, and also back then was where the migrants were brought in uh, processed and ready for deportation, including men, women, and children. Um, so I'm going back several years, many, something like 15, 15 years ago. Uh, that's, that those two, two substations are still in existence. Uh, what you do have now, which, which wasn't back then, is uh, you have your Border Patrol checkpoint, uh, every uh, state road that goes through the, the reservation, uh, there's always a Border Patrol checkpoint where everybody has to stop and go through that process. Uh, so you have uh, probably close to 24-7, just alone within the district that I'm a member of, is 400 uh, uh, Border Patrol agents that, uh, that patrol the just within the district alone. That's not even including all the other According to the last report of Hotam Voice Against the Wall, a non-profit organization funded by several Antonio Hotam members, human rights violation and increased militarization have been a reality at the U.S.-Mexico border for over 150 years, and indigenous peoples and their free movement have been the target of this militarization. The border regime had and has still direct consequences on the Tohono than people living in borderlands. There wasn't that much of a homeland security presence uh, in on the nation before 9-11. There were there. I mean, I talked to people on the nation and they remember like their grandparents talking about one border patrol agent who lived in this some house. Like, oh, that's where the border patrol agent used to live. And there was one. But then it, the post-9-11... Uh, um, what happened post 9-11 on the Tonatum Nation is it's definitely made that that particular place um, I would say a hot spot for for border militarization in every sense of the word that's from you know significant increase of agents um, coming from different stations that surround it There's an Ajo station and a Casa Grande station, and the Tucson station, a three-point substation, which all feed into the into the nation. So you, you can drive around some places and, and see more Border Patrol than normal cars. Um, and then checkpoints were put up on all paved roads leaving the Tonantum Nation. And it's gotten to the degree where... Um, Again, the ACLU, um, but it, uh, there was a border litigation person for the ACLU who went to the Taunatum Nation, I believe, and it was 2014 or 2015, and he had a town hall, and he asked um, if 
if there's anybody uh, there who had a bad experience with the border patrol and like a hundred people raise their hands and they and those and those experiences range from just being like like a lot of people have tailgate you know they tailgate me they're driving high speeds on the roads they um they they'll bright they'll put their brights on me that sort of thing from on one hand to a whole host of issues regarding like being pulled over um never not knowing why you're being pulled over being pulled out of your car there's people that who have been had guns pulled on them or, or hit with a baton or pepper sprayed or people closer to the border complain about home invasions and then just about everyone has had a bad experience with the checkpoints in some degree or another so much that um Amy Wan, who's a, from the Tonantam Nation, she coined this term called checkpoint trauma, which basically ever means like everyone approaching a checkpoint, including little kids, will feel the checkpoint before they even get to it. And um, kids will stop playing and become quiet. And uh, there's just been so many bad experiences in these at the checkpoints. Um, and so, yeah, so the presence has, has become, you know, uh, of, border, of Border Patrol Homeland Security has really um, become prominent and um, most likely undermined, you know, the full side, uh, ultimately undermined sovereignty in a lot of ways. Um, it's that's This is where you get into very complicated territory because... Um, uh, in a lot of cases, you'll see resolutions passed by the Tona Atom Legislative Council um, allowing Border Patrol to do different things, to, to build a substation, to build a forward operating base, to put that integrated fixed towers, that sort of thing, which, which I think at first, uh, when, the, when this first was happening, like around 2001, there was more maybe just not knowing what was going on or people just saying, okay, fine. But now it's to the point where there's a divisions, you know, and a lot of people that are, that are not keen on that, but a lot of people that say, well, the legislative council is just going to rubber stamp anything that the border patrol says they're going to do. And I think you get into weird, really complications of sovereignty. Like there's, some people talk about pressures that the legislative council feels like they won't get money for other things if they don't agree to this or that there's other pressures that we might not necessarily know about. So um, I don't know how, but I, I know that it's that when the physically speaking, when you go there, you know, it, it definitely feels like it's uh, it's in many in some places especially closer to the border like these areas have been taken over by the border patrol so does anyone profit from the border apparatus prevention the deterrence is made is designed to make it as dangerous as possible so it's there's no protection there but you talk to people in the borderlands which was uh, which was i remember when um i've been reporting on this for so long or dealing with border, talking with border patrol for so long that i can actually remember when they talked about prevention through deterrence now they kind of ignore it but they they would say well we do this because crime has gone down big time in the cities they used to have that used to be a narrative which they don't do anymore it's it's interesting that they shifted it i think it was after a lot of exposure around people dying crossing the border but um 
but uh, that was the justification. But now it's hard for them to say that when so many people, like I just mentioned, or live along the border, are like they have had their home invaded by border patrol, or they've been harassed by border patrol, or or like if you're a person of color, you know that's you you it, it's shown already. Like there's profiling as a part of what they do. So so um so there's that part of it, and of course when people in border and border cities are like mostly a Mexican heritage, like so Nogales or Douglas or so people in those, in those places, like my, you know, I anecdotally, every single friend I have in those places has a story about being chased by the border patrol, like including like when you're in the grocery store and you're checking out. Um, so it's, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard like case to make who it benefits unless you start thinking about, like what the border system is, um, um, because it, I mean, people coming across too. It's like a lot, of, you know. The, the a lot of people will work in jobs, and and they they become part of a big part of the labor force as well. Then there's that movie, A Day Without a Mexican, when it, that um, shows what would happen to the state of California if all the undocumented labor from Mexico left and it's a really kind of I don't know if you've seen it but it's a funny it's a pretty comical movie in the sense that like the prices go up on tomatoes and all this other stuff um and so so the, the then they turn to like oh we're protecting from drugs and you know but then when you start unpacking that if you know you're not you're not because the the supplies meeting the demand like if you look since Department of Homeland Security was created in 2003, $320 billion have been put on the border in immigration enforcement. And supply meets demand easily for drugs. And then 80% of it, 90% of it goes through the ports of entry. So you have this justification because, oh, it's coming. Oh, see, yeah, a lot of a lot of drugs or some drugs do come through the through the deserts people lugging like 50 pound bags of marijuana maybe not even hardly that anymore because it's being legalized everywhere um but that's it's but when you unpack it it's it's a it becomes a false narrative the terror false narrative all of its false narratives but it's been bringing in bringing in money um for to to increase the, this apparatus, so who does it benefit? So now you're down to okay, one a system of control that's broader that has broader implications that um and and also you know when you're talking about budgets, you have a whole um, sector of private companies that are getting contracts that have been getting contracts that are getting more and more contracts and and one and I've been looking at this for a while the kind of private industry or what I would call the border industrial complex um, and it's it's to a degree that it probably would surprise most people it surprised me even looking into this for years and years and years and like the latest stats that I saw or that if you look at contracts given by CBP and ICE to private industry, there's 105,000 contracts between 2008 and 2020 worth $55 billion. And that is more than the entire 28 years of border and immigration enforcement budgets from 1975 to 2003, 28 years. 
So that shows you how much the border, the budgets have gone gone up, and it also shows um, how much uh, so how much money is going to private industry, and then the private industry ranges from big companies like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics to smaller to smaller companies. They're all getting contracts, and um, all, most companies have access to politicians, Congress people, committee members. They have more resources to be able to do, make con- campaign contributions, and they can get in closed doors meetings when budgets are being debated, and so you have this kind of thing going on. Um, in a world where, at the same time, where you have all kinds of you, you have more and more displacement happening for multiple reasons. There's so many reasons we go into. But um, a lot, you know, a lot of the, when I look at the border, it's like, well, that's, it's almost like, who does it benefit? Well, it benefits a a bigger system, right? It benefits a system where you can just look at the simple example where um, minimum wage in Mexico is $7 a day versus minimum wage is $7 an hour, right? And everybody's talking about how it should be $15 an hour, but it's still like in Arizona, I believe it's still seven twenty-five an hour. And, um, but that's still like what somebody, if you go work in a factory in Nogales will, will make seven, seven dollars a day or eight dollars a day as a line worker with, you know, little benefits and from factory jobs that moved from the United States into Mexico. And for the most part, there's other countries too. And that just is an example of like this kind of stratification of inequality that, um, and the depths of inequality that you see in the world. And then you add climate, climate onto that, you know, the shifting climates and you're seeing it so sharply in Central America, so sharply that even CBP is starting to admit they've done interior, they've done some internal reporting on, on effects of food stressed you know, departments in Guatemala, for example, and showing higher rates of people arriving to the border and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, showing that, like, there's huge areas in Central America where, farm, you know, the seasons are no longer reliable. And, uh, of course, the hurricanes that hit, you know, last year over warming Caribbean waters. And you have, so you have, like, that those aspects that are all kind of converging and what would you, you know what like a border kind of the border systems uh kind of keep things in place or to try to at least to keep kind of the status quo or business as usual you know churning along the second episode with the first one tries to give a definition of what borderlands is in relation to migration policies Episode 3 will talk about the people crossing by the desert and the needs of search and rescue operations. Thank you for following Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and its impact on communities. See you soon, and not to forget, this second episode has been mixed by Nicolas Puissant.